Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And the Lord said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman you gave me to be with, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrows and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it. All the days of your life, both thorn and thistle, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 through 19. So in our last episode, we talked about suffering more as a philosophical and general concept. But in this episode, I hope to shed some light on suffering as a personal reality. So last episode, we talked about evil in the world, and and we talked about some pretty major world events that have happened throughout the course of history and and some even more recent history. But what about sickness? What about cancers? What about death of someone we love? What about the stuff that hits so close to home that it shakes the very foundations of our lives? As a matter of fact, it seems as though no one is immune to suffering. It seems as no one is immune to pain, and and the Bible actually promises as such. Jesus at one point said the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, that the rain, which was the blessing, falls on the just and the unjust alike, but given the kind of constant theme of parallelism we see in the Bible, it's no stretch of the imagination to think that the drought comes to the just and the unjust alike. That both blessing and cursing comes to the just and the unjust alike, right? And, and what that really means is that even if you're a good person and you live a very religious life and you do all the right things and, and you never sin in your entire life, there's still a, a curse that hangs over all of us. As I just read in Genesis that the Bible teaches, it's this curse from the initial sin of the garden, the initial sin which... Perhaps I'll do an episode covering what the initial sin really is and and what it signifies, the rebellion that it is against God, the pride that it is, as we'll probably actually cover here soon in a couple episodes, this theme of pride. Uh, But it, it was the pride of Adam saying, I know better than God. 
And there's this theological concept that from that prideful act of Adam saying, I know better than God, now we are all subject to a sin nature, but beyond that, we're subject to the thorn and curse that sin has brought to the world. We're subject to suffering as a result of sin. Now, I started with this, and I had a double motive here. I wanted to point out also a flawed uh, thought pattern when it comes to suffering, when it comes to evil. I myself am no exception of this. Uh, about six years ago, I was in a pretty horrible motorcycle accident, and I remember the day that someone asked me, do you think God put you in that motorcycle accident because of some sin you had in your life? And I remember that day because I was shocked by that, uh, because it's bad theology. But it's not uncommon theology. It's, it's a common theology and a common doctrine among religious people, uh, not in the Bible, but among religious people that is everything bad in your life is a result of you having messed up or sinned. It, it's the same uh, concept that we've talked about in this show where uh, the disciples were walking by a blind man and they said, well, Jesus, who sinned? Was it the blind man or his parents? Thinking, well, gosh, he's blind. There's a curse clearly on his life and it must be because of sin, right? And Jesus gave the answer, neither, but so that the glory of God could be revealed. This man was born blind and then he healed the man. Uh, thus the man was no longer blind, but that was the whole purpose behind the man's suffering was so that the glory of God could be revealed. Not that this man had committed some atrocious sin or that his parents had committed some atrocious sin and therefore uh, every action has its equal opposite reaction. God must curse based on sin. That's contrary to the theme of the Bible, right? As we've talked about already now, the theme of the Bible is actually grace. The theme of the Bible is mercy. The theme of the Bible is a God who loves so much that he's willing to take the consequences, to take the suffering, uh, so that he can overlook our sin, right? So that, that he can remember it no more, as the Bible says. And so at this point, I find it helpful to share with you guys something that helps me to understand personal suffering on a little bit deeper level. And uh, I, I'm going to be reading a, a quote from C.S. Lewis, a man who was once an ardent atheist, a skeptic to Christianity, skeptic to the faith, and then uh, through logic and reasoning found his worldview in Christian faith. Uh, he was also a man not adverse to suffering. He was a man who lost loved ones in tragic, tragic ways throughout his entire life and knew suffering. And, and he wrote many books on it. Uh, but at one point, C.S. Lewis says, All arguments in justification of suffering provide bitter resentment against the author. You would like to know how I behave when I am experiencing pain, not what books say about it. You would need not guess, for I will tell you. I am a great coward. But what is that to the purpose? When I think of pain, of anxiety that gnaws like fire and loneliness that spreads out like a desert and the heartbreaking routine of monotonous misery or again of dull aches that blacken our whole landscape of sudden nauseating pains that knock a man's heart out at one blow, of pains that seem already intolerable and then suddenly increased, of infuriating, scorpion-stinging pains that startle into maniacal movement a man who seems half-dead with his previous tortures. If I knew any way of escape, I would crawl through sewers to find it. But what good is that of telling you about my feelings? You know them already. They are the same as yours. I am not arguing that pain is painful. Pain hurts. 
That is what the word means. I am only trying to show that old Christian doctrine of being made perfect through suffering is not incredible. To prove it palatable is beyond my design. In estimating the credibility of the doctrine, two principles ought to be observed. In the first place, we must remember that the actual moment of present pain is only the center of what may be called the whole tribulation system which extends itself by fear and pity. Whatever good effects these experiences have are dependent upon the center, so that even if pain itself was of no spiritual value, yet if fear and pity were, pain would have to exist in order that there should be something to be feared and pitied, and that fear and pity help us in our return to obedience and charity is not to be doubted. Everyone has experienced the effect of pity in making it easier for us to love the unlovely. That is, to love men not because they are in any way naturally agreeable to us, but because they are our brethren. In the second place, we are considering pain itself. We must be careful to attend to what we know and not to what we imagine. About human pain we know, about animal pain we can only speculate. But even within the human race, we must draw our evidence from the instances that have come under our own observation. The tendency of this or that novelist or poet may represent suffering as wholly bad in its effects as producing and justifying every kind of malice and brutality in the sufferer, and of course, pain, like pleasure, can be so received. All that is given to a creature with free will must be two-edged, not by the nature of the giver or the gift, but by the nature of the recipient. And again, the evil results of pain can be multiplied if sufferers are persistently taught by the bystanders that such results are the proper and manly results for them to exhibit. Indignation at others' sufferings, though a generous passion, needs to be well managed lest it steal away the patience and humility from those who suffer and plant anger and cynicism in their stead. But I am not convinced that suffering, if spared such officious, vicarious indignation, has any natural tendency to produce such evils. I did not find the frontline trenches more full of hatred, selfishness, rebellion, and dishonesty than any other place. I have seen great beauty of spirit in some who were great sufferers. I have seen men, for the most part, grow better, not worse, with advancing years. I have seen the last illness produce treasures of fortitude and meekness from most unpromising subjects. I see in loved and revered historical figures, such as Johnson and Cowper, traits which might scarcely have been tolerable if the men had been happier. If the world is indeed a veil of soul-making, it seems on the whole to be doing its work. So that was a rather long quote, but it brings me to my first point, is that sometimes, listen to that word because that's my caveat, sometimes suffering is intended to make us holier. Right? This is a very common Christian doctrine, and I don't want to put a blanket over all suffering. I'm not saying God is forcing suffering upon your life, or God is allowing something to happen uh, simply and solely to make you a better person. At the end of the day, he is a good God and loves you and wants to bless you. But part of the blessing is that you'll be a better person, is that like C.S. Lewis said, you'll be gentler, you'll be kinder, right? It's no stretch of the imagination uh, to say something when you look out at this world, why can't people be more kind? Right. I, I, I look out uh, currently in our 2020 climate and I'm frustrated uh, when I see people not wearing masks 
you know, again, whether you agree with this or not, there's a, a kind of a general principle of respect and love for your fellow human within most of us, uh, most of us decent people. <laughs> I guess I should pause. And I'm not saying you're indecent if you don't wear a mask. I just really don't agree with your lifestyle. Um, <laughs> currently in 2020, who knows, maybe in a couple years, this podcast will seem really, really silly. But there is something within us that says, I may not agree with wearing a mask, but I'm going to wear it because I care about my neighbor, right? Because I, I love my fellow human enough that even if I don't agree with it, they might agree with it. And they might be really offended at me not wearing a mask, right? So there's, you know, a little anecdotal example right now. Again, this is 2020. This is what I'm using. This is what we got. Um, but in any given year, you can look out at the world and say it would be so nice if people were a little kinder, if people were a little more compassionate, if people were a little more patient, if people were a little less quick to judge or jump on a a politically divisive sphere and um, condemn the other side or condemn people that would think differently of them, it would be so much nicer if people were more compassionate. Well, there's a truth that allowing humans to go through suffering grants us pity, grants us compassion. So, so that's point number one, is that God allows personal suffering in our lives so that we would be softened so that our hearts would care, so that our hearts would cry with others that are suffering, with others that are crying. Because after all, God is a community. God is a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God's church is a community. God's nation of Israel is a community. Heaven in the Bible is described as a community. God wants us to live in community. God wants us to live in relation. If life is nothing but comfortable for us and we get everything we want, what we end up having is pride. What we end up having is an elitist mentality. But if God allows some suffering into our lives, and I don't know how much suffering is allowed into yours. You don't know how much he's allowed into mine. It could be a lot. It could be a little. But if he allows some into our lives, it makes us kinder, more compassionate people. It brings us into a level of holiness. And to my second point on suffering, uh, as we're already more than halfway through this podcast, I would actually like to talk about a subject that's a little more targeted. Uh, so up until this point, I haven't really brought up any specific sufferings. I've kind of generalized and had lists. But right now, I'd actually like to talk about the suffering of anxiety. Uh, I think, again, we're in 2020 right now. You may be listening to this podcast at a later date. You may actually have some more wisdom on the subject than I even do at this moment. Uh, if you do, that's fantastic. Uh, let's have a conversation about it. But anxiety is something that is plaguing our world tremendously this year, has plagued our world tremendously in the past years, even leading up to this current year of so much uncertainty in the world. But anxiety is another very, very common theme of suffering that many of us have, myself included. I, I don't believe any of us are exempt. I don't even believe Jesus was exempt from anxiety. And to make that bold point, I would like to turn back to my main man, C.S. Lewis here, and read a little bit more of what he has to say specifically on the subject of anxiety. Clive Staple Lewis says, some people feel guilty about their anxieties and regard them as a defect of faith. I don't agree at all. They are afflictions, not sins. Like all afflictions, they are, if we can so take them, our share in the passion of Christ. For 
The beginning of the Passion, the first move, so to speak, is in Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, a very strange and significant thing seems to have happened. It is clear from many of his sayings that our Lord had long foreseen his death. He knew what conduct such as his, in a world such as we have made of this, must inevitably lead to. But it is clear that this knowledge must somehow have been withdrawn from him before he prayed in Gethsemane. He could not, with whatever reservation about the Father's will, have prayed that the cup might pass and simultaneously known that it would not. That is both a logical and psychological impossibility. You see what this involves, right? Lest any trial incident to humanity should be lacking, the torments of hope, of suspense, anxiety, were at the last moment loosed upon him. The supposed possibility that, after all, he might he just conceivably might be spared the supreme horror. There was precedent. Isaac had been spared. He too, at the last moment, he also, against all apparent probability, it was not quite impossible. A sight very unlike most of our religious pictures and images. But for this last and erroneous hope against hope, and the consequent tumult of the soul, the sweat of blood, perhaps he would not have been very man. To live in a fully predictable world is not to be a man. At the end, I know, we are told that an angel appeared comforting him. But neither comforting in English nor in the Greek means consoling. Strengthening is more the word. May not the strengthening have consisted in the renewed certainty, cold comfort, this, that the thing must be endured and therefore could be. We all try to accept with some sort of submission our afflictions when they actually arrive, but the prayer in Gethsemane shows us that the preceding anxiety is equally God's will and equally a part of our human destiny. The perfect man experienced it, and the servant is not greater than the master. We are Christians, not Stoics. So a pretty bold claim by C.S. Lewis that anxiety is in a weird way a part of God's will, and yet the Bible says be anxious for nothing, right? How do we reconcile that? We reconcile that in just what he said, that it was the first step of the passion, right? The passion refers to the journey of Jesus on the cross. Paul writes in the Bible that when we suffer, we are in a very, very unique way blessed by God because we're in a very unique way in a communion, a more intimate communion with Christ, the suffering Savior, than we ever could be in any other form of life. That suffering, in a very unique way, brings us closer to God than we ever would have been had we lived a comfortable life where everything we wanted was handed to us and everything we worked for we achieved and there was no failure and there was no disappointment and there was no moments of hopelessness and there was no moments of pain and there were no moments of anxiety. To experience anxiety is to experience the moment in Gethsemane, if anything, in part. To feel the stress of blood filling your head and causing you to have a headache is simply a taste of the stress on Christ that caused blood to pour out of the pores in his head and for him to sweat those great drops. So in these two points, we're just about out of time for the episode. There is so much more to talk about with suffering, so please do not think that the two points I am making here are the end-all, be-all of suffering. Uh, again, I've kept it pretty generic for these first two episodes on suffering, 
So if you have more questions, please send them in. I'd love to have more discussions on suffering. There are so many more books, so many more authors, so much more Bible that talks about suffering. But to suffice for this episode, please just consider that the things we talked about in this episode and the last episode are possible explanations for it. And to kind of wrap it all back to something we talked about last episode, just because we can't speculate and just because you or I may not be able to think of a good reason why God allowed a certain suffering to happen doesn't mean that there isn't one. Again, God, the the very definition of God must mean that he is all-knowing, must mean that every every aspect, every every ounce, every particle of knowledge that exists in this universe, God has. It, 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 he contains within his mind, right? And so if we finite humans that live maybe a maximum of 70 years, if you don't get hit by a bus or a truck, and I've already been hit by a truck, so, you know, there we go. <laughs> if we can't think of a valid reason for suffering, it doesn't mean that one doesn't exist. And just because myself or maybe you know you listen to someone else and we speculate some possibilities some very logical possibilities as to why we suffer doesn't mean that that's the exact reason why you're suffering it doesn't mean that's the exact reason why your family member or your friend is suffering uh, because god can still do new things and he can still have new reasons for doing things that we haven't seen yet but that is all the time we have for today so as always thank you so much for tuning in and i hope you've enjoyed the show 